0: Welcome to the Natasha Crane Podcast. I cannot wait to share today's episode with you. But before we dive in, I just want to give a quick announcement to make sure you guys all know about this. Next week, I'm going to be in Detroit with my friends Alisa Childers and Frank Turek for the next Unshaken conference event. You are not going to want to miss this. If you are anywhere in the area, you can still get tickets at unshakenconference.com. It is a wonderful day where we will equip and encourage you to stand firm for Jesus in this challenging culture. And I got to tell you guys that what we hear back from people, we hear awesome feedback about the content of the day, and I know you're going to be blessed by it, but people also say it's just so wonderful to be with like-minded believers, people who are passionate about standing firm in today's culture. So you don't want to miss this if you can get to Detroit next weekend on March 9th. And if you're in the Pittsburgh area or can get there, we'll be there on May 18th. Those tickets are also already available at unshakenconference.com. And these are just a couple of save the dates for the fall. We don't have the tickets available just yet. Keep your eyes on the podcast or your ears on the podcast and I'll make sure to announce when they are available. But we're going to be in Buffalo, New York on September 21st and Austin, Texas on November 16th. Again, those tickets are not yet on sale, but mark your calendars now so we'll let you know as soon as they are. In today's episode, I want to feature the work of a very important organization that every Christian should know about, Alliance Defending Freedom, or ADF, as we'll call it today. ADF is one of the leading Christian law firms committed to protecting religious freedom, Free speech, marriage and family, parental rights, and the sanctity of life. ADF is also one of the nation's most respected and successful United States Supreme Court advocates. They have played roles in 74 Supreme Court victories. And since 2011, ADF has represented parties in 15 victories at the Supreme Court. So today I'm so honored to have Ryan Bangert on the show. He is Senior Vice President for Strategic Initiatives and Special Counsel to the President at ADF. He oversees ADF's regulatory practice, government relations, and corporate engagement teams. He also advises executive leadership with strategic initiatives and appears as counsel for ADF clients. So welcome to the show, Ryan. So glad to have you here.
1: Natasha. thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to visit with you and looking forward to our conversation.
0: Awesome. Well, I know that I just gave an official description for ADF and a little bit from your formal bio, but maybe you could start by just telling people a little bit more about what you think the average person needs to know about the work that ADF does and about anything you'd want to share more about your personal role there.
1: I'm oh, Happy to do so. So ADF is an organization that's been around for 30 years now. We are three decades young and counting. And ADF was founded back in the mid-90s by a group of visionary founders, including James Dobson, D. James Kennedy, Larry Burkett, a number of others, Bill Bright, uh, who saw a gap in the wall. And the gap that they saw was that legal groups like the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, were advancing a very distinct agenda through the courts through litigation, lawsuits, legislation that was at odds with our Western heritage and ultimately at odds with Judeo-Christian values. And what they found was there was no effective or organized counter to groups like the ACLU and others that were driving this this agenda. Certainly there were grassroots organizations, grassroots political movements. I was a part of some of those when I was growing up, but nothing that was well-organized or well-funded in the legal space the place where you could bring lawsuits or actually design policy. So early on, ADF was, was tasked with that mission of filling that gap. And ADF was initially called the Alliance Defense Fund. Those were the words, the letters ADF stood for Alliance Defense Fund because the thought was that ADF would serve as a source of funding for attorneys who would take on these cases involving religious liberty, freedom of speech. Uh, later on came parental rights, and certainly life was always a part of the mix. And oftentimes those are not very lucrative uh, areas of the law to practice in. Uh, you're very, they're very worthy, obviously, but not something that uh, generates a lot of income. So Alliance Defense Fund was there to fill that financial need. And what we found is over the past 30 years, the model for ADF has changed. We've had to adapt to the current threats, to the current shape of the culture. And that has meant building ADF out into uh, what I would call a A organization, a ministry that's fit for the moment. Uh, And that's involved a lot of change and a lot of growth uh, over these last 30 years.
0: That's a really helpful overview. And I I know that you you just said that ADF helps in a lot of different categories, but today we're going to focus on parental rights in particular, as I know that that's an area that you are especially close to. Let's start with a definition on that. On the ADF website, it says this, quote, At a basic level, parental rights encompass parents' right to make decisions regarding the upbringing, education, and health care of their children without undue government interference. These rights have existed since creation, and they stem from God's design for marriage and family, end quote. So as a Christian, of course, I agree with the existence of these pre-political rights and their grounding in God's design for family. But in a culture that's increasingly throwing out any kind of belief in God, it seems inevitable that the march is going to be toward the government saying, no, no, you don't have those so-called God-given rights. You only have the ones that we as the government are going to give you. But from a legal perspective, it's my understanding that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment is what theoretically, at least, protects that from happening despite our culture going in another direction. So this seems like a really important place to start on this topic. Could you explain what parental rights are protected by the Constitution and how those protections are being challenged today?
1: Yes, absolutely. This is a question that's being actively litigated and debated in the public square. And I mean, I know many of your listeners have probably been involved in or seen uh, these, these debates taking place in school board meetings, uh, certainly in the halls of Congress. And when you talk about parental rights, uh, it's a pretty broad term. It's a term that oftentimes goes undefined. And I think it's very important to define what we mean by parental rights. Uh, there's a difference and a distinction that I want to draw early on, and that is the difference between positive rights, rights that are sort of created by the state, um, you know, like a right to get a driver's license or things like that, and pre-political rights, rights that we all have as created human beings that aren't dependent upon action by the government. And we believe that parental rights are something that fall into that latter category. They they exist apart from government. The Declaration of Independence put it this way, said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And we believe that parental rights are part of that package of inalienable rights. And ultimately, those rights come from the way God created us, the created order. The family is an institution that God created. It's a fundamental building block institution of society. And legal philosophers have recognized this for hundreds of years, going back to Aristotle and Plato, all the way forward to some of the sort of the legal progenitors of the American system, like Locke and Blackstone. Uh, Edmund Burke consistently recognized that families are those, those little platoons in society that form the building block of our culture. And why is that? Well, because without children, without families, there is no culture. There is no nation. There is no state without those fundamental building block aspects of it. So the relationship between the parent and the child is something that comes before government is ever formed. And government is obligated to protect that relationship and protect the rights that come with it. Now, the government here in the United States has protected those rights historically through the 14th Amendment of the Due Process Clause. And this is a process that began early in the 20th century with a series of cases uh, involving the right of parents to educate their kids, Meyer versus Nebraska. Uh, Pierce versus Society of Sisters. These are cases that raise questions about whether or not parents could educate their children in religious schools, that's the Pierce case, or whether parents could even teach their children foreign languages, that was the Meyer case. And in both cases, the court held that parents did have a pre-political fundamental right to control the upbringing, education, and formation of their children. So it's something the court recognized early on. Now, that line of cases has gone largely undeveloped. For the past hundred years. Every so often, the court will jump in and, and reach for parental rights to decide a case. That happened in Wisconsin versus Yoder. That was the famous case about whether or not Amish parents had the right to withdraw their children uh, after a certain age when state law said they had to keep their children in school all the way through the age of 18. Um, the court said, yes, absolutely, the Amish uh, community does have the right. These parents have the right to educate their children in a way that is consistent with their religious faith. Also, Troxell versus Granville, a case in 2000, the court had to decide whether or not grandparents or others who are outside the parent-child relationship had the right to petition the state for visitation rights. And the court uh, found that this statute was unconstitutional because it didn't properly recognize the right of parents, that fundamental right of parents. So there's a long tradition in history here in the U.S. of protection of parental rights, but it's not because the state says so. It's because the state is recognizing something that came before it. And that's why we believe criminal rights are fundamental uh, and pre political.
0: So given that there is some protection here that you're talking about with the precedents and the, and the 14th Amendment, how how is that being challenged today? How, how do you see people kind of pushing back against the Constitution? Because we see this in so many different areas in terms of constitutional interpretation. I'm certainly no legal person, but I know that this is extending itself beyond just the parental rights. We see this all the time. So what are ways that people are challenging parental rights despite what is covered in the Constitution today?
1: Internal rights are always being pressed on. Uh, it's something that has historically taken place. There's always this conversation between the state as an institution and families about who has the right to raise children. And this goes back thousands of years. Uh, if you look back, even in the, in Greek times, uh, these nation states like Sparta and even Athens to a degree uh, took the, the state would take responsibility uh, to raise children, even taking them away from families. Obviously, we think that's inconsistent with that fundamental right. But here in the U S today, we see the same debate playing out in real time. And one place where we're seeing it play out v- in a very pronounced way is with the, the rise of uh, what's been called uh, sort of mass gender dysphoria, uh, gender, gender dysphoria, of course, is a condition where someone feels uncomfortable with their biological sex. People who identify as a gender other than a biological sex, are commonly called in the, par- in the common parlance transgender. So that movement has elicited a lot of controversy and a lot of disagreements around the way schools are treating kids. Now, I mentioned earlier that ADF uh, was initially founded as, a, as an organization that funded litigation. In the last 30 years, we've grown a lot. And some of the areas we've grown into, uh, we have uh, lawyers now who bring our own lawsuits, who represent our own clients. And we represent clients free of charge. We have lawyers who write, who write laws and then work with legislatures to get them passed. We have a legislative team that does that. We have legal training uh, tracks that train lawyers in how to litigate these types of cases. And we do that both here in the U.S. and around the world. And so through that work, through that evolving work that we've done, uh, we've, we've encountered some clients and brought cases on their behalf to push back on the way schools are treating kids who are struggling with gender dysphoria. Let's keep, I'll give you a great example. In the state of Wisconsin, we represent a family against the Kettle Moraine School District. It's called TF versus Kettle Moraine. And it's a fascinating case, and here's why. Because in that case, uh, the parents, um, Tammy, and their, their daughter's name was Autumn. Uh, Autumn was struggling with gender dysphoria. She was struggling with some, some issues involving comfort in her biological sex. She saw a counselor. The counselor initially advised them to engage in this, what they call gender transition, start using different names and pronouns. But ultimately, Autumn's parents rejected that course as improper. And when Autumn returned to school, they told the school counselor, we don't want to follow this path of gender transition. We don't want you to use names and pronouns for Autumn that disagree with her biological sex. What the school told Autumn's parents was, well, we disagree with you. We as the school, we're going to make the decision about how to treat Autumn. If, she, if we believe that she needs to be treated as a, as a boy, then that's exactly how we're going to treat her. And you, the parents, have nothing whatsoever to say about it. The school took that matter into their own hands. And so uh, they withdrew her from the school. And she, uh, over time, became very comfortable with her biological sex. So we filed a lawsuit against the school on their behalf. And we got a recent court decision that found that the school had violated their parental rights by refusing to honor their wishes with respect to the way their daughter was being treated. But that's not the most egregious case that we've found. That's pretty bad. But we're litigating a case right now in the state of Michigan on behalf of the Mead family against the Rockford Public Schools. The facts of this case are just shocking. Uh, Early in January of 2021, uh, the Mead's daughter in middle school began struggling with some, some relational issues some mental health issues, so she began seeing the school counselor. She saw the school counselor for almost two years, saw her over thirty times, or nearly thirty times. Uh, and during this course of the time, uh, the Mead's daughter developed a very close relationship with this counselor, and even went to ice cream with the counselor and the counselor's daughter over the summertime. And as things evolved, it co- turned come to find out. Um, their, their young daughter was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and a couple of other uh, challenges. Uh, fast forward to August of 2022, so about a year and several months into this relationship, the school counselor advises the teachers in the school that they're going to begin referring to the Mees' daughter as a boy using a male name, but they weren't going to tell the Mees. They weren't going to tell mom and dad anything about how their daughter was being treated in the public school system. They even went so far as to implement a policy to ensure that every time their daughter was referred to in a report home, that her actual female name and female pronouns were used, when in fact, in the internal school records, they had switched everything over to male names and male pronouns. So they were keeping two sets of books, as it were, and only showing the parents what they they wanted the parents to see. The The only reason the parents learned about this was the school accidentally sent home a report where they forgot to redact out and change the use of a male name for the Mead's daughter. That's the only way they figured this out. And that's when we filed a lawsuit on their behalf.
0: It's, I, I mean, it, it's tragic and it's heartbreaking. And you, you I think, a lot of parents uh, who are up to date on things that are going on today, they can kind of picture the school hiding certain things and not proactively coming to tell the parents. But it's just one step beyond that to hear that in some of these cases that you're dealing with, the school is proactively working against the parents. They are going out of their way to hide the information. It's not just, hey, we're not going to, you know, come and bring it to you. We're going to actually hide it from you. So it's it's really remarkable to see. What's going on there? You know, it, it seems like in these cases, from what I understand at least, that there's already a policy in place about these things where they're going to, to some degree, depending on the district, they're going to protect the students' desire to socially transition, to use new pronouns and names and, and have the appearance and those kinds of things. But when school districts have that policy and they're going to execute that, that also requires that all these teachers and staff are participating in this lie, that they're all required to get on board with it. So I'm, I'm curious to know. Are there cases where employees of the school have actually sued in some way for the right to not participate in these gender transitions? I would think that this is becoming a huge issue for Christians who work in public schools going forward.
1: It is, and there are such cases. The, the position that we stand on is that parents have a right to know all the essential information about their kids. Schools should never hide information from parents. Schools should never take it upon themselves to enforce this ideological orthodoxy of the new gender identity movement on kids. And they certainly shouldn't be doing so without telling parents and getting consent. And we've seen that over play out over and over again, not just with respect to parents and their kids, but also as you mentioned, with respect to public school employees who object to this new regime of hiding information from parents, of obfuscating information that parents need to know. A good case example of that uh, happened in Kansas just recently, Pam Rickard. In a case uh, against the Geary County Independent School District in Kansas, Pam, high school teacher, she encountered one of these policies where the school district told her, Hey, look, if you have a child in your classroom who is struggling with gender dysphoria, and that child, that student, requests that you use different names, different pronouns, pronouns that disagree with the child's biological sex, you need to honor that request. In fact, you're mandated as a teacher to honor that request. But even more, You can't say a word about it to the parents unless the child specifically gives you permission to do so. So, and of course, oftentimes that's not going to be the case, right? The children are wanting to experiment in school with new identities, uh, new gender identities, but they don't want the parents to know, but they want the school to change all of its policies, not change its policies, but change all of its records, change the way they're treating these kids internally. And, And Pam objected to that. We filed a lawsuit on her behalf arguing that she had a religious liberty right not to lie to parents about information fundamental to the upbringing of their children. And she won that case. The district court found that she did have a religious liberty right not to be forced to lie to parents about information that parents had a fundamental constitutional right to know about their kids.
0: So it, it seems like it, all of these things are bubbling up from individual school districts. So it seems like it's almost like whack-a-mole, right? Like trying to each school district where it comes up, it's like, here's a case and here's a case, and we're going to keep hitting on all these cases. From a legal perspective, I just don't know how that all works out. I would love to hear your your thoughts on that. I mean, you, you can keep handling all these individual cases, but at what point does it bubble up to a higher level where we say, okay, we need to handle this across the board, either, I guess, at the state level or at a federal level? What does that look like, rather than ADF just having to handle a slew of individual cases over decades and decades.
1: We're always handle, happy to handle a slew of cases. We've <laughs> done that for a long time. But you're right. I mean, there, there have to be more systemic approaches, especially to problems like this, where parental rights are being violated. Uh, we don't know, quite frankly, how many mm-hmm. school districts have these policies, because oftentimes you find out about them only when parental rights are being violated. Uh, certainly, parents, uh, parents in places like Kansas and Michigan and Wisconsin don't suspect that their local school district would have policies that require the school district and its teachers to hide this critical information from parents when they, in fact, have a right to know what's going on with their kids. So it's not something that you would necessarily expect uh, as a parent. But I mentioned earlier, ADF, uh, we're working across a number of different uh, areas to address this problem. One area we're working is the legislative arena. So individual states oftentimes uh, will have policies that dictate how, what the types of, the shape of rights that parents have with respect to these problems. And we've been working in ADF to advance a, a variety of different laws and bills that would protect parents' rights when it comes to public education. That includes Defining the rights of parents to control the education and upbringing of their children is fundamental under state law. Well, why is that important? That's important because it means that if a state violates parents' rights, they can only do so if they meet a threshold called strict scrutiny. The state has to come up with a compelling interest for violating that right. Oftentimes, the compelling interest in the the parlance of the law is considered the is considered the death knell for government action because it's very difficult to come up with a compelling interest that can override a fundamental right. And even if they can come up, even if the government can come up with a compelling interest, the abrogation, the violation of that right has to be very narrowly tailored only to address the government's compelling interest. We also have laws that require transparency from public schools. They cannot hide information, especially information about how students are being addressed, pronouns, how their gender is being treated within schools all of that has to be disclosed. We also are working on legislation that would require parental involvement in any type of decision that would affect a child's gender identity in school. So one way you can handle this at the state level is through legislation. And ADF's legislation, legislative team has been working on that. And we've had several successes. A number of states have taken us up on passing laws that that, that implement these types of rights for parents.
0: If there's a parent who's listening right now, thinking, well, "I don't have any idea what my district does on these, and I would have no idea how to find out," where do you go? Where do you even begin to look? If you're going online, you bring up Google, and you're like, "I'm going to search this out," but but how do you do that? What do you say? There are over thirteen thousand school districts in the U.S., so things are going to vary tremendously across them all. And so, and I know some people. You mentioned this earlier. Some people are like, "Well, I live in Oklahoma. I'm in a red state. You know, surely nothing's wrong in the public schools in Oklahoma." Uh, but you have to know your district you have to know what's coming down from the top. I've done a lot of podcasts on public education when we've talked about this, but on these district policies specifically, where do parents go to find out? Mm
1: -hmm. Parents have a lot more rights than they think in the public school system. Now, there are a variety of places you can go. Oftentimes public school, depending on the district, public schools will publish their policies online. And when you're looking at those policies, it can be difficult to tease out whether or not these gender identity Features are there. Things to look for would include if the school has a non discrimination policy based on gender identity. Uh, If gender identity is one of the factors that the school says uh, is a prohibited factor when it comes to discrimination, just know that it's very likely that school likely will be implementing that non discrimination policy in a variety of different ways. Uh, That would include giving access to school restrooms or school sports teams based on gender identity and not biological sex. Another thing to look for if you're accessing a policy online is whether or not teachers are required to disclose information to parents or not disclose information to parents concerning a child's gender identity unless the child consents or agrees. That's another thing that you can look for in school policies. I would also encourage parents, as they're working with school counselors in particular, to inquire about the policies for how children are being treated. Directly ask the question if my child as a gender identity crisis, if there's some sort of gender dysphoria that's disclosed, will you tell me about it? Are you going to inform me about it? I would work directly with the counselors on those questions. Oftentimes, parents just don't even think to ask that question. They assume that a school counselor is going to be open with them and inform them about this necessary information. And oftentimes, that's not the case. Um, Another way that parents can engage is through their school boards. Uh, School boards, oftentimes, are much more uh, conservative on these issues, not always, but oftentimes more conservative on these issues than their own staff, because they have to be responsive to the parents, to the people who elect them. Uh, so those are ways that you can engage as a parent. Uh, but the biggest thing is always stay close to your kid and inquire, make these, make these inquiries, uh, especially amongst the school counselors or the counseling staff at schools, if your child is, is engaging with them. Don't just assume that you'll get all the information you need and you don't need to ask for it.
0: I want to dig into that a little bit more on the counseling issue because you talked about in one of your cases how this this young girl had been meeting with a counselor for a couple of years I know from reading about the case a little bit online that the the counselor was in active communication regularly sharing information with the parent when it didn't have anything to do with the gender dysphoria issues and so they it wasn't that the counselor just didn't share anything it was they were totally fine sharing things until the gender dysphoria issue came up and then the counselor went silent and so I think this is just one example of so many potential issues with school counselors. I've talked about this before also. And so it raises a much broader question. Maybe there are parents listening who are thinking, well, my kid's not struggling with gender dysphoria, but they are having a lot of meetings with their school counselor. We should be so, so mindful of what can go on in those meetings. What rights do parents have to know what content is discussed in those school counseling meetings?
1: Right. And so there are a couple of different ways to look at that problem. Oftentimes, counselors will have uh, duties or obligations of confidentiality with their with their patients, but that can be modified when it comes to the parent child relationship. So, and each state is going to address that differently. But something that I think we need to pay close attention to is will that counseling result in concrete action being taken by a school district to affirmatively alter the way a child is being addressed in the school. So will that counseling relationship result in an action plan that then results in the child using a different name, a different pronoun, creating a completely different identity in the school system, having records changed, potentially even being given access to different restroom facilities. All of those things are actions that parents absolutely have a right to know about. If action is being taken by a school, to quote unquote change a child's gender identity, we believe that is something that parents have a constitutional funda- fundamental right to know about. Many states are passing statutes, as I mentioned earlier, that would grant parents the right to know anytime a school takes concrete steps to implement that kind of a plan. And if a school district doesn't have that kind of a policy, if a state doesn't have a bill that requires it, we believe that parents have an overriding constitutional interest to know if and when schools are taking concrete steps uh, to implement some sort of gender transition plan for a child that may arise out of a counseling relationship. So so I think that's a very important thing to point out is that uh, schools cannot, in our view, take any steps. They can't hide information from parents, nor can they take affirmative steps to begin transitioning a child's gender. And I say transitioning advisedly because we know you can't actually change a child's sex. It's impossible. All you can do is begin treating them differently than their biological sex uh, demands. And, and that we believe that's positively harmful to a child in a number of different ways. Um, parents have a right to know about that. And we believe whether it's statutory, policy-based, or if those are lacking constitutionally, parents have a right to know.
0: And I would just encourage parents, if you do have a child who's been meeting with a counselor in your public school, um, to talk to your child about what they're talking about. There might be information that you're not getting firsthand for all the reasons that we're talking about here, no matter what the subject is, whether it's gender dysphoria or anything else, see what your child will tell you. And just be very, very cautious with this. Because we have to remember that any kind of counseling, whether it's in the public school system or outside of that, is based fundamentally on two things, identifying problems and then looking for solutions to those problems, these are much of the time related to worldview issues, how you're going to identify what a problem is in a person's life and the solution that you're going to propose are very, very fundamentally going to come back to how someone views the world. So your kid, if they are with someone who is not a Christian, and this doesn't mean they can't be counseled on anything at all outside of a Christian environment, but it's worth being cautious about because if it's a non-Christian, they're going to have different views of what is wrong and what the solutions are. And I continue to hear from parents who've had some really, really troubling things happen with school counselors, um, with regular mental health counselors outside of that area. So just something that I hope all listeners will consider in terms of the counseling process. Well, are there other district policies, just broadly speaking, that we're, we haven't talked about here where you're seeing significant infringement upon parents' rights? Are there other types of policies that you would say, hey, parents, be aware that this is bringing up some issues in this area of parental rights and go look and see what your, your district is doing?
1: Well, there certainly are, and it oftentimes arises in that same space of these contest over gender identity. Take, for instance, the case we have right now in West Virginia, BPJ. That's a case involving a challenge to West Virginia's law called the Save Women's Sports Law. Uh, many of us, or many of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware of the uh, the discussion that's happening right now across the nation about whether or not biological males should be allowed to compete in women's sports. Many states have passed laws that at least at the high school level and oftentimes at the collegiate level uh, require that biological men not be permitted to compete on biological women's teams, teams dedicated for biological females. Uh, those laws are coming under challenge in a number of different states. One of those states is West Virginia. Uh, we represent uh, the state in that case alongside the attorney general, Patrick Morrissey, uh, defending the state law. And at the district court level, Uh, the district court found that there were good reasons to separate sports based on biological sex. There are safety reasons for doing that. There are privacy reasons for doing that. There are, uh, in addition to that, there are just fundamentally common sense reasons for doing that. But as parents, you need to know and understand what is the school's policy with respect to sports and whether or not biological males will be allowed onto the sports team. Because that goes beyond just the playing field, uh, beyond the injuries that can occur that many of us have seen on YouTube videos and, and others uh, of biological men uh, who have just fundamentally uh, greater degrees of, of speed and strength who are injuring female competitors in the sports field. But it goes beyond that, because think about the locker room. The, chain. This, is the this is an issue that came up with Leah Thomas famously. Uh, Leah Thomas, of course, was smashing records. Leah Thomas being... Easy. He's a man, he's a male, a male swimmer, here from my home, hometown of Austin, in fact. Uh, a male swimmer smashing women's records. But the real tragedy in that wasn't just the records that were being smashed and the women who were being kept off the podium, but the fact that Leah Thomas was walking into the women's locker room uh, and violating the privacy and the dignity of those women uh, who were in the locker room. Uh, and Riley Gaines, of course, spoke has spoken out very eloquently about this, that parents have a right to know whether or not they're, they're female athletes, and I, I had a female swimmer uh, in high school. Uh, she's now in college, but she swam in high school. I, wanted, I would want to know if my school district was trying to put biological men in the locker room with my daughter. So that's one area that I think parents need to be aware of. Another would be facilities. Uh, oftentimes, rest, school restroom policies are being changed now uh, to force biological men who identify as female into women's, locker, into women's restrooms. I think that parents need to know about that as well.
0: Those are those are good examples for people to think about that. Clearly we see a lot of this in the news, but sometimes parents, like I said, don't think it's going to come to them, um, especially in places maybe that traditionally didn't see a lot of this. So I think it's important for people to hear. You know, clearly you're doing a lot of work on these legal challenges, like we've been talking about in terms of the whack-a-mole, uh, kind of as they as they rise up. But like you mentioned earlier, you're doing a lot of equally important work in the legislative area to encourage the state and federal legislatures to protect parental rights. And I love that. Honestly, that is the most important encouraging. encouraging thing to me because that's kind of getting at it from the top down, trying to put in place some protections so that these things aren't so easy to happen in the future. And so your website has some interesting stats that I just wanted the listeners to hear. 39 states currently have no statutes that expressly define and protect parental rights. 47 states do not grant parents review of learning materials and activities in advance of teaching. That one is shocking to me. Hmm. 12 states do not allow parents to be involved in their school's sex ed curricula. So there's a, a lot of work to be done here and ADF has a Center for Legislative Advocacy working on these matters. Can you tell us some maybe a little bit more about some of the most urgent goals? I know you you mentioned some of the work earlier, but maybe as respect with respect to those statistics in particular, like you know, parents not being able to review the learning materials. What are some of the the key initiatives that you guys are working on towards some of those things?
1: Yes, we, we mentioned earlier the transparency initiative, giving parents a, a fundamental right or basically defining their fundamental right to include the right to access learning materials in the schools. Oftentimes we found schools will try to withhold learning materials. Sometimes they'll withhold them even on copyright claims. They'll argue, well, I can't give you this material because it's copyrighted. And if you take it outside of the school grounds, it might violate some sort of copyright requirement. So schools have all sorts of creative ways to prevent parents from accessing learning materials. But we're, we're advancing legislation that would shine a light on the type of materials that are being used by the schools to educate kids, especially in these sensitive areas that you mentioned. Also, you mentioned 39 states have no statutes that expressly define and protect parental rights. That's fundamentally important to ensure that parental rights are defined as fundamental in state law and that they're protected as such, but not just protected, that parents have a private cause of action, that parents can actually bring a lawsuit based on violations of their parental rights and hold the government accountable. And that's something we're working very hard with legislatures to do to ensure that parents don't just have a right, but they have a remedy. And they can enforce that remedy in a state court to ensure that government actors, school actors, are being held accountable when those rights are violated, such as in the cases that we, that involve the Mead family, uh, the Soxie family up in New York, uh, the, the our family in Harrisonburg, the Gliola family. All these families are families who are challenging violations of their fundamental parental rights. And we believe every state needs to have a law that gives them a cause of action that would allow them to pursue accountability for school district officials who are violating those rights.
0: So we've been focused a lot on the the parental rights aspect today, but um, are there a couple of cases that you just want to highlight that you feel are particularly important that ADF is working on right now, maybe outside that area, just so that listeners get a feel for the scope of what you're doing? What are a couple of cases you think are, you know, everyone needs to know about these, every Christian?
1: Well, there are a couple of cases overseas and a couple of cases here at home that I would love to tell your listeners about. I mentioned earlier that ADF is a legal ministry. We're not just a U.S.-based legal ministry. We're a global legal ministry. We have operations all over the world, and we're seeing things happening uh, on the other side of the globe that should be a warning bell for Christians and believers and people of faith here in the United States as to what can happen if we don't vigorously protect and and defend our religious liberties. I want to take the case of Piivi Rassen as a great example. Piivi uh, is a minister of parliament in Finland. So someone who is with some power, a minister of parliament, uh, she, about five years ago, sent out a tweet on her own time when she noticed that her church had engaged in support for a local LGBT pride parade. She simply said, I don't think this is biblical. I don't think my church should be engaging in support for an LGBT pride parade. For that tweet, she was investigated and ultimately prosecuted, criminally prosecuted as a member of parliament, prosecuted in the country of Finland for criminal hate speech. And that prosecution went on for nearly five years. And she twice now has been acquitted by courts in Finland, but she had to defend herself for five years in the criminal courts in Finland against hate speech charges for sending out a tweet simply explaining a biblical view of human sexuality and what that view calls on the church to do and to say. Another example is Isabel von Spruce. Isabel is a pro-life activist in the UK, a volunteer who stands on sidewalks outside abortion clinics and silently prays. And she's done this for a long time. Well, a law was passed that prohibited even silent prayer on sidewalks outside of abortion clinics in the UK. So sure enough, she went to the sidewalk and she bowed her head And she silently, but didn't speak a word, just silently prayed. She was approached by law enforcement officers who asked her what she was doing. And she wasn't speaking. She wasn't saying anything. So it was pretty hard to tell what she was up to. Uh, They asked her, are you praying inside your head? Are you thinking a prayer? And she said, well, maybe I am. They said, well, you're coming downtown with us. She ended up being prosecuted for that. She was acquitted, but she was ultimately prosecuted for thinking a prayer inside her head.
0: It, it's hard to fathom, and I, I think it's tempting as Americans to think, "Well, it's not going to get that bad here." But it is going to get that bad here. I mean, we can we can see the trajectory of things. We can see where it's going, and we're seeing more and more of these things come along. And I'm so grateful for Alliance Defending Freedom and other organizations like yours who are taking this up. It's it's critically important work, and it's so important for Christians to know what you're doing. Uh, there are a lot of issues that I think that believers need to be keeping up with today. We need to be aware of the things like what you've been talking about and so many others that we don't have time to get into, what do you think is the best way for the average Christian who's like, I'm not a legal person, but I care about what's happening in this country. What is the best way for them to keep up with ADF's work, to know about the key cases and the key victories, the key struggles, and also how can people support ADF?
1: That's a great question. ADFlegal.org, ADF-L-E-G-A-L.org is our website. We have case pages for all the work we're doing, Uh, profiles of legislation that we're working on. We have a lot of resources for media there. Um, And when you mentioned uh, how can folks support us, obviously looking at the page, there are ways to contribute financially. But more important than that, if your listeners can pray for us, we have two cases this term at the U.S. Supreme Court. They're going to be argued in the next month and a half. Uh, Both cases involve challenges to the federal administrative state. Uh, and the administrative rules that are trying to force an abor- a pro abortion agenda on the whole country. One requires emergency room doctors to perform abortions. The other strips away even basic health protections for women who choose to use mifepristone, a chemical abortion uh, pill, uh, a drug, uh, to do a chemical abortion. Uh, so these are very important cases. Both will be argued at the U.S. Supreme Court in the next uh, next sixty days by uh, one by an ADF attorney. That's the Mifepristone case. And the other uh, by ADF will be supporting the Idaho Attorney General's Office along with other co-counsel in that case. So please be praying for us as we go to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, here in the coming months. Uh, These are just really important cases for the cause of life.
0: They are so important. And one of the things that I appreciate is that I get an email periodically from you guys um, pretty regularly. I don't know that it's every day, but maybe weekly or so. And I've signed up for that somewhere on the website. Is there a newsletter that you guys have? How am I getting those emails that um, I want my listeners to be able to get those emails? That's how I know about a lot of these cases that come up. So where do people go to sign up to actually have information pushed to them? um, Not just where they go to find information proactively.
1: That's all ADFlegal.org. And there there should be on the landing page a way for you to jump in and get engaged right away. Uh, We we try to make sure that landing page always gives you an opportunity (laughs) uh, to engage with us uh, right off the bat. Uh, Okay, So I want to
0: encourage people then to find the email subscription box because everyone has good intentions. You know, everyone wants to say, yes, I'm going to go to the website. I'm going to learn about it. And maybe you do once, but then you're going to lose track of it if you don't actually sign up to get information. So I want people to go to the site, uh, pull it up, find the place where you can subscribe uh, by email. And the emails are very helpful. I just I love just keeping up with what you guys are doing. Well, I always invite listeners to submit questions for upcoming guests on my Facebook page. And in response to my post, when I said I was having you on, we had over a hundred questions and comments from people. It might have been the most of her. So uh, we obviously just have time for a few here, but I picked the ones where it seemed like a lot of people were asking similar questions around them. Uh, lots of people kind of voted them up with their likes and loves. And so that's why I picked the, the handful that I did. So if you're listening to this, I'm sorry if we didn't get to your question. There were so many that we just couldn't take more than a few. Uh, the first one, and this does relate to parental rights, is what trends do you see in the protection or lack thereof for parents having the right to homeschool? I know this mm-hmm is a huge concern for a lot of parents. What what are you seeing in that area? Yeah,
1: very encouraging. I think that space is very encouraging for parents. Uh, Michael Ferris, uh, the previous uh, CEO of ADF, really did yeoman's work over decades and decades to establish rights of parents to homeschool their kids uh, all throughout the U.S. And I think right now that right is fairly secure. Um, Now, we are, of course, seeing attacks on that right. We're seeing attacks on parents' rights generally. And one area that I'm, I am concerned about, quite frankly, it would be efforts by by states to classify a decline a declination by parents or a refusal by parents to recognize a child's professed gender identity as some sort of child abuse. Um, that's something that we have we've seen the trail edge of that uh, come up in in a few uh, custody battles. Um, we haven't seen it fully pronounced yet. I think we have to be vigilant in ensuring that parents. Uh, have the uh, ha- absolutely have the right to raise, educate and form their children in a way that's consistent with biblical belief and quite frankly in a way that's healthy for children. Statistics show that children who struggle with gender dysphoria prior to puberty and who are not transitioned but simply allowed to play that out over 90% of them desist and become comfortable with their biological sex. And I think it would be an absolute a tragedy if the state tried to get involved in the parents' decision making around that, in a way that prevented parents from allowing children to heal that dys- that dysphoria on their own.
0: Well, that's encouraging to hear because I, I know, as a former homeschooling parent myself, that that was always something that um, you know I was concerned about. Will this come to an end? And when you know, when is this going to be something where the government comes in and says you can't do this anymore? Especially if you're in a state like where I am in California, where nothing surprises you anymore in terms of what you see come down. So that's actually really encouraging to hear. Uh, this is a different subject outside of parental rights, but there are so many people who wanted to hear you answer it that I'm going to throw it in here. Uh, here's the question: What should Bible? honoring churches do to defend themselves from lawsuits from pro-gay marriage and LGBTQ plus affirming groups? Does ADF have any resources for this that you might point churches to?
1: Yes, that's a fantastic question. ADF has a program called the Ministry Alliance, uh, and there's a website for that. uh, And it's it's actually a sub-branded website of ADF. um, But the Ministry Alliance is a group of over 4,000 ministries all across the country who have subscribed to ADF for a small fee to receive resources from us, a review of policies and advice concerning how to protect yourself as a ministry uh, from uh, claims that, that you are not allowed to engage your religious liberty, especially these flashpoint issues, flashpoint areas around gender identity, abortion, uh, things of that nature. So, the ADF Ministry Alliance is a wonderful resource for any church uh, that wants to receive assistance uh, in that space. The website for that if if you don't mind me uh, offering that no, up. No, please it's, do. It's adfministryalliance.org. Again, all one word, adfministryalliance.org. You can find out all about the resources that we have available. Uh, pricing and benefits are there. Uh, you can contact us directly through the website. Uh, it's a wonderful program that we've launched. Like I said, over 4,000 strong and growing. Uh, we, we're really encouraged by the response we've seen uh, to this. And it's really meeting a need that ministries have for counsel around some of these very challenging issues.
0: And I'll put a link in the show notes to some of the things that that Ryan's telling us about here so you can easily access them there. But that sounds like a a wonderful ministry a wonderful opportunity for churches to get involved with. And I just want to add, you know, if you're a listener to this, you might be more informed about some of the things going on and the issues we're talking about than even your pastor, depending on the church. So don't assume your church is protecting itself right now. And this is the same with apologetics when we talk about that on the podcast and trying to bring it into your church, so many different things like that. Don't hesitate to go to your pastor or to somebody who's in leadership of your church and say, hey, is this something that we've considered? Is there Are there things that we should be doing to protect ourselves as a church, given the changing cultural forces that we're seeing? I heard about this great ministry through Alliance Defending Freedom. and You can introduce them to that there. So um, I'd really just encourage you, if you're listening, to bring this to your church's attention. It's not necessarily on the pastor's radar. Pastors are very busy. They have a lot of stuff going on. So you can actually be helpful in providing them with some resources like the ones that we're talking about here. A third question that someone raised is, what are ways we can protect ourselves if we work at large corporations that have huge focuses on DEI programs? And I, I mean, this is not just large corporations. What do people need to know in their place of employment when DEI issues come up that are kind of rubbing up against what their conscience tells them that they can or can't do, probably related to pronouns in their signatures, for example? What? How yeah. would you advise people on this?
1: Yeah. Boy, that that you're really uh, that that is an area of tremendous concern right now, and that's really on the cutting edge of work that ADF and other groups are doing. DEI, of course, is diversity, equity, and inclusion, and oftentimes what we see is it falls under this rubric called ESG. Uh, ESG is environmental, social, and governance, which is a movement that uh, some would argue it sort of emanated from Davos from Klaus Schwab, but it's it's a it's a corporate uh, a movement that tries to set up businesses as the uh, deciders or the avatars of morality. I mean, that business takes upon itself not just the business of making money, but the business of setting a social agenda agenda for its employees and for society at large. Uh, This is a really big problem uh, from a variety of perspectives. One is in corporate cancellation. We see businesses that are refusing to do business with customers or other business partners based on disagreements concerning religion or political ideology. Uh, and that's something that we see happening with, with some degree of frequency. Um, we also see uh, businesses that are forcing, like you said, these policies on employees that they may not be able uh, to stomach. Um, now, businesses are not subject to the First Amendment. They're private actors. So they do have uh, there is no constitutional claim for a violation of freedom of speech, freedom of religion. But employees oftentimes do have statutory protections under Title VII. Uh, Employees have what's called the requirement for religious accommodation. Uh, And this is being litigated ever more frequently now that the U.S. Supreme Court has decided that businesses don't just get a free get out of jail free card when it comes to denying religious accommodation claims. Uh, There was a case just last term in which the U.S. Supreme Court addressed a longstanding precedent that said businesses really had to satisfy a minimal burden. They just had to simply show that accommodating uh, someone's religious needs was minimally burdensome in order to refuse an accommodation, the court said, that's not the law. You actually have to provide a meaningful accommodation and you have to have a good reason for refusing accommodation. So we're seeing now our employees starting to step up and say, hey, I have, a, I have a religious need here. And the business needs to accommodate that in good faith. And under Title VII, I think we're going to see the law play out. Um, one place this is happening right now is a case in Indiana involving a music teacher named James Kluge. Uh, ADF is representing him. Uh, He was teaching music at his public school and a policy was handed down requiring him, like we've talked about earlier, to use pronouns that disagreed with his students' biological sex. And what James said was, well, you know what? I respect my students, but I'm not going to lie to them and I'm not going to violate my conscience. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to use uh, I'm, I'm simply going to use proper names. I'm not going to use pronouns. I'm going to use proper names to refer to my students. Um, or I'm going to simply use, I'm going to use ways of speaking with them that don't require me to disagree with their biological sex. And the school refused to accommodate that. They said, no, sorry, you're going to lose your job unless you bow the knee to this gender ideology that we're trying to enforce on you. So that's in litigation right now. Um, and our claim is under title seven and he's entitled to, we believe a religious accommodation for that. Um, so this is going to become an increasingly common, I think, type of litigation as businesses more and more embrace an ESG and DEI driven social agenda.
0: If someone's listening to this and they're thinking, I think that I would legitimately have a case so for something that's going on, is there a way that people can contact you and reach out and say, is this something that you guys would be interested in taking on? How does that, how does that happen?
1: Absolutely. If you go to our website, there's a contact button and there are a number of different ways that you can contact us. But right at the top of the list is request legal assistance or ask legal questions. You can fill out a form, and that goes right directly into our legal intake system. Uh, so if you go to ADFlegal.org, there's a contact button, and right at the top there is a way for you to request legal assistance.
0: I can only imagine how many questions you guys must get. <laughs> if my one Facebook, if my one Facebook post is soliciting 100 comments just for one interview, I can only imagine what you guys are sorting and through. But what a valued thousands. service. Thousands
1: and thousands every single year. It, it, they come in in, in, in large numbers.
0: That's amazing. Well, there were a lot of questions on that thread that were about all kinds of rights in different types of work environments. So um, you know, whether someone's talking about their public school teacher rights or someone who's working in counseling and mental health, um, I, I can't remember any of the others off the top of my head, but several of that nature saying, what are my rights as a Christian in this type of work environment? And yes. obviously, we can't go through all those individual situations here. So I wanted to lump them together as one question for you and, and kind of ask, where do People start? If their question is, what are my rights as a Christian in in fill-in-the-blank environment? Where do people even go to start researching that?
1: Yeah. You know, it depends on the context, but I'll give you a few examples that may help your your listeners get started. Take the example of counselors. You mentioned counselors. What are their rights? We represent a counselor right now in Colorado. Uh, the Colorado state of Colorado, like many jurisdictions, has prohibited counselors from engaging in talk therapy. Uh, To treat individuals suffering from gender dysphoria, if the talk therapy encourages that individual to reconcile with their biological sex. But if the counselor encourages that individual to identify differently, to basically change their gender identity, well, that's just fine. And they can counsel like that all day long. So it's a very one sided law. We believe that violates counselors' First Amendment rights to speak. This is talk therapy. There's nothing more speechy than talking to someone. (laughs) <laughs> and counseling them, and so the First Amendment should protect that, right? So we've argued in that case that there's a First Amendment right on the part of that counselor, that Christian counselor, to engage in that type of talk therapy. Take, for example, medical professionals. Medical professionals who are on the front lines in our in our culture and society today, oftentimes being called on to make difficult decisions. And and what we found is the government. Uh, in fact, we were expecting very soon a regulation to issue from the Biden administration under the Affordable Care Act that will require. Anyone who receives Medicare and Medicaid funding, so vast, the vast majority of medical practitioners, to not discriminate on the basis of gender identity. In other words, you have to perform gender-altering, quote-unquote, gender-identity-altering procedures using pharmaceuticals or using surgery. And in some, some cases, you might even be unable to discriminate based on um, desire to terminate a pregnancy. In other words, you have to perform an abortion. And so these are things that we're seeing the government pressing on medical professionals to violate their conscience. We believe that violates medical professionals' First Amendment rights, but not just that, but their religious freedom, the free exercise rights. So that's a place where we believe that, again, First Amendment claims can be lodged to defend against these government efforts to violate conscience. Uh, In other cases, you may have statutory rights. I mentioned Title VII already in the religious accommodation. So really, it takes you have to go you have to go case by case. But there are a variety of tools. The message I want your listeners to hear is there are a variety of legal tools in the toolkit that can be used depending on your context and your situation to address these violations of conscience and religious liberty. The United States is one of the most protective countries, if not the most protective country, of religious liberty and freedom of speech in the world. We have the First Amendment. We find oftentimes that uh, things that are taken for granted in Europe, violations of conscience or speech that are taken for granted in Europe are things that would shock us as Americans because we've grown up under this regime of the First Amendment. What concerns us is the younger the younger generation, Gen X, uh, Gen Z, I should say. Gen Z, I like to think Gen X is younger because that's me, but we're not. <laughs> me <getting money>. too. <laughs> Gen Z, millennials, uh, you know, these kids, they, they don't understand the value and the yeah. importance of the First Amendment. And oftentimes... When you talk to them, they're like, you know, we believe in free speech as long as that speech doesn't offend anyone. Yeah. As long as it's
0: not harmful, right? Doesn't
1: hurt anyone's feelings. We all know that, you know, sticks and stones, that's out the window now. Speech is a weapon and it has to be carefully controlled. Well, speech is, in some cases, you know, the Bible talks about how uh, the word of God is a sword dividing. uh, It it divides. Uh, It is. Speech is powerful, but it shouldn't be limited. It shouldn't be limited. And that's what the first amendment says. So we have a lot of rights as believers here in the United States. We just have to know them and we have to exercise them well.
0: Well said. And let's let's leave people with some point of encouragement uh, at, in working in this area. It must get discouraging a lot of times to see everything that's coming up. It can feel overwhelming, I am sure. So what keeps you encouraged that mm. as you're moving forward as a Christian, as an attorney working in this, this area, what keeps you encouraged and continuing on?
1: Well, I love that question. Um, I, I think when you see the problems that we're encountering in the world today, uh, the, the temptation to discouragement is real. But I think as believers, we are called to encourage, we are called to a place of joy and a place of eager expectation. And why is that? Well, we serve a God who, as my pastor often says, is undefeated. Uh, yeah. God is undefeated. And we know who we serve. And we also know the Bible is very clear. As believers, we're going to suffer trials and tribulations in this age, but those trials and tribulations are passing. Uh, they are only for a moment, and they accrue to the glory of our Savior. And if we're being obedient in the moment, all we're called to be as believers is obedient in the moment. And we talk I talk about this a lot at ADF about the Acts Four moment that we're living in right now. And if you think back to Acts Four. The apostles had just witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they were filled with excitement, with joy. They were preaching everywhere they went, and they were encountering incredible hostility and persecution. And what did it do? It just emboldened them further. It emboldened them further. Um, you look at when Peter preached after Pentecost, and thousands came to the faith, a tremendous victory. Or you look at Stephen being martyred who was successful and who was unsuccessful? Well, both of them were obedient. So both of them were successful in, the, in God's economy. So the ultimate outcome is in God's hands. Our call is to be obedient. And we know that that obedience uh, will not come back void. And we know that God is undefeated. And uh, in the end, we know exactly what the book of Revelation says, uh, that the tree of life is going to yield fruit for the healing of the nations. And we can rest assured in that.
0: Oh, I love that so much. So, so well said. Thank you so much for taking the time to share all of this with our listeners today. And I hope so many people will check out Alliance Defending Freedom and support you guys. And I'd encourage my listeners, if you're able to financially to support all of this, obviously takes funding. Uh, and of course, your prayers as well are so important. Thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you, Natasha. I really appreciate all the work you're doing.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening. As always, if you're enjoying the program, please take a minute to rate and review on your podcast player helps more people find out about it.